everyone, welcome back to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today's episode is featuring marine biologist Lucy Gerkinger, who tells us so many fascinating things. We start off with her telling us about the greatest issues that are facing the oceans, which is of course climate change and overfishing. She shares with us how climate change is causing ocean acidification, how that happens, how that has an impact on shells and eggshells and coral growth. She also talks about the warming waters, what that means, and how the ice caps melting is actually affecting currents, which can change the whole migratory and behavior of thousands of species that we cannot even imagine the impacts in the long term. Then we continue to talk about the overfishing issue and how the seals in Peru are actually eating all the fish from fishermen. Therefore, that is a big problem because now the fishermen want to kill the seals and it all starts with, you guys guessed it, the elimination of the apex predator sharks. So, so stay tuned if you want to learn all about that. We finish off this episode with one of potentially the most important things we have talked about on the Ocean Pancake podcast, and that is why talking and learning from local communities and fishermen is so important in terms of marine conservation and sustainability. So yeah, welcome to this episode. Thank you for being here. If you can take a moment and give this podcast a positive review, that would be great. As well, join the Ocean Pancake Facebook group where you can chat to like-minded people about things you hear here. Hear here? Yeah. And let's get into this week's episode. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. to another episode of the Ocean Packing Podcast. Today I have Lucy Gerfinger with me, who is a marine biologist who has traveled just about everywhere in the world. So we're going to hear some very exciting things from her. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. So let's get started. Kind of, Can you give us a quick run-by of your history with marine conservation and how you got into it? Yeah, sure. So I actually, I was born in uh, France and my dad's job meant that we had to travel a bit uh, everywhere around the world. And so I got to live in Africa, I got to live in Peru, I got to live in the Dominican Republic. And as I grew up, like in those different types of, you know, oceans and different uh, weather, you know, you get different types of fauna. I really got the chance to get into different types of seas and really see, you know, different species. And I was just overwhelmed by the immensity of the ocean whenever I would get there. And just, I don't know, it was overwhelming. And 
even when the sea was really rough and really let's in parentheses violence <laughs> um i always felt this kind of deep uh peace uh and it's every time i looked at the ocean i'd be like wow like what is underneath everything you know like the ocean is such such an a difficult place for humans to go to you know you have to get like your scuba diving gear or even like you need goggles like naturally if, as if we get nothing and we go underwater we can't really see anything and so i got really attracted to this um to this elements of earth let's say and i started then going into the field as soon as i could i started uh in the dominican republic i was just straight into uh getting to ocean conservation so that's pretty much a global overview of how mm -hmm. i i got into it how old were you when you first got into it i was 14 15 i think 14 15 so you see it's never too young to start if you guys want to get involved then i'm sure you can find organizations which are happy to educate you and teach you and things like that i just recently did a episode of the ocean packing podcast with the shark conservancy in south africa have you heard of those guys I, are these the ones that uh, do the white shark? Yeah, all the shark research down there. Yeah, 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 I have, I have. Yeah, they have plenty of kids coming through as well. So it's good to see how many organizations are, you know, open to having people under the age of 18 to learn. Yeah, for sure. I mean, nowadays the ocean is such like a big um, topic and a big, there's like a higher interest into it now because, of, you know, all the, troubles there like climate change and overfishing and so people are getting much more interested in doing ocean conservation and just learn about it because of course some countries don't even have seas so I guess kids are really wanting to get uh, an experience and uh, want to help out firsthand into uh, all the marine conservation work that is being done and I know there are lots of uh, organizations that well some or have uh, organized plans, you know, where you pay and you get like a whole bunch of um, uh, insights into what is being done in the, in like for marine conservation, but also other organizations are more than happy to help like students in their projects, uh, taking them in, showing them like how it works, how they can help them out. And I think that's a super exciting because it's super important to, you know, you, it's only when you understand something that you get to know the impacts, its threats, and how you can solve solve problems, basically. That's true. What do you think is like the biggest problem which is currently facing our ocean? I think the big well, there are big big issues and that all occur at the same time. Unfortunately, yeah. of course, one of the big ones that come to mind is climate change mm -hmm. because climate change. Uh, because of the amount of carbon dioxide that is released into the to the, the atmosphere, then most of it is being like sunk back down by the oceans, and this makes the water more acidic. Mm -hmm. And because it's more acidic, then they you have um, of course chemical processes where, for example, shells are thinner. The eggshells are also thinner and get like more. Um, all that is uh, that needs uh, calcium uh, to to be um, to you know grow, to grow yeah. um, is then affected by this acidic ocean, 
And because of the warmth that, that, that climate change, um, you know, um, instigates basically, yeah. um, makes uh, the icebergs also starting to melt. And this amount of fresh water also really disrupts the ocean currents. Mm-hmm. And this, if you change the ocean currents, of course, like lots of migratory species, like for example, eels rely on currents, like lots of species really rely on currents to know where they're going and to go to feeding grounds or like reproduction grounds. And the disruption in this system really can affect marine species like across all levels and disrupts the climate as we can see like really recently you know there was a japan typhoon mm-hmm. and just shows how if you mess up with this kind of system there are just everything just goes to the extremes in, instead of like balancing um you know like balancing like uh water like waterfalls and everything so that's like one of the biggest problems facing the ocean currently this whole disbalance in currents and water flows which affects marine species because marine species of course takes takes thousands of years to adapt to their environment to the mm-hmm. type of food that is available so this whole disruption for most species is really hard to uh, adapt to and one of the other biggest challenges i think uh, is happening is the overfishing because well two factors right so overfishing is basically taking too much fish out of the ocean and then you're let, left with like nothing so it's pure stock depletion uh, which creates like shifts in food chains like for example in Peru overfishing of sharks has resulted in higher numbers of seals uh, seal populations which is in turn becoming a big problem for small-scale fisheries because seals like they don't hesitate to just chase boats and bite through nets and just generally disrupt fishing activities and now fishermen are complaining that the seals are just eating basically all their catch well of course not all because that would be an exaggeration but most of the catch yeah and they they really want government to start killing those seals Mm -hmm. and I approached a fisherman and I asked him like, yeah, but who, what do you think eats the seals? And he said, well, I know that the only predator is sharks. And I said, well, but who is killing the sharks? And he's, he was like, oh yeah, that's true. It's us. Surprise! <laughs> 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 I was like, that's, that's it. Like you have to understand that whatever you do, there's always an impact behind it. Um, so that disrupts all the, Again, as I said, like the ecosystem, like the there's like small population of either or either predators or a higher population of prey, and that just brings a whole bunch of cascading effects. So cascading effects, is, for example, like if there's like too much too many predators, then the prey are completely reduced to nothing, and then down but low the bottom chain, then it's just the food chain, then it's all like disrupted, and yeah. One also of, of the fortunate effects also is of overfishing is bycatch mm-hmm. because they use such big nets and for example, uh, elasmo branch, which like sharks, skates, rays and all, um, they don't see the, the nets and there's still not really a system, you know, to kind of warn them off 
the nets. And so lots of species just get caught in those nets, even like turtles, there's the, you know, the TED, the turtle exclusion devices, mm -hmm. but they are used sometimes, not all of the times, not on all the nets. And uh, like, for example, about one fifth of yearly catches in the United States is discarded because one fifth of all the catch is bycatch from generally is um, from megafauna, so dolphins, turtles, and sharks, as I just mentioned. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest problems as well, because overfishing, if you deplete the population, of course, they take time to recover. Mm -hmm. And because of the higher amount of popula human population, there's a higher demand for fish. So that means more bycatch, more fish trying to get taken out of the ocean. And it's always, well, in probably 90% of the cases, unsustainable, right? Because you set a law, you're like, okay, yeah, we have to just take out 40% uh, of this population at this time of the year and this certain size. But of course, each fish has its value. So the more you catch, the more money you make. And so that's one of the, the main problems as well, um, facing overfishing. So I think those two are really the biggest challenges facing the ocean. Wow, you really gave us a lot of information there. So let's, let's unpack it a little bit because it's so fascinating. Um, let's start <laughs> off with the climate change uh, part. Yeah. We'll get to overfishing. I, I talk about that a lot. But climate change, I didn't actually know that one of the impacts of more acidic water was like thinner shells and thinner eggshells. This is really fascinating. You studied this as part of your undergraduate, is that right, at the University of Hawaii, Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology? Yes, exactly. So I, well, I wasn't really focused on the impact of the acidity mm -hmm. on the shell growth of clams, oysters, and yeah. also other calcifying organisms but I went to the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology to uh, do my research project for my last year of university uh, as a bachelor student mm -hmm. and I was really getting just really to learn the, the importance and the issue of climate change yeah. and I wanted to know one I really wanted to know how it impacted uh, coral reefs yeah. So I knew that there was uh, in this um, in this institute there was a coral reef research group, mm -hmm. and I just came up to them and I was like, "Look, I really want to learn like the impact of climate change." And so I collaborated with um, another scientist who was doing her PhD. So her name is Dr. Barr now. Uh, but back in the day, she was still a PhD student, so that was, uh, got super happy when she became a doctor. And we decided to look at the effect of temperature and um, light as well, and acidity on the endemic coral reefs in Hawaii. And it was really impressive to see how the corals would just die off increase of temperature, they would die off, increase acidity, they would die off, and increase of light as well, they would die off. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really scary to know <laughs> how, you know, how, how it just, the, 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 high, the extremes, if you put extremes to, to marine species, they, they, they just can't adapt fast enough. 
yeah of course you know you always get of maybe a thousand corals there are maybe a hundred which will survive but that's just like one heat wave or one you know acidity wave but if it just like keeps going the the chances of these corals to survive are really really minimal and how did you test this so was it in like tanks that you had back in the lab or can you kind of yes. walk us through the scientific method of testing out the impacts yeah sure so they had um uh um outside kind of let's say big buckets mm -hmm. and they would put water in them and we would put um, a grid and on the grid we would put small fragments of the corals so we were looking at two species of corals and we put the fragments in the in the water and then we set you know like the oxygen in the water and then we would bubble up some um carbon dioxide and to to change the temperature uh, the temperature we will have like one bucket which would be warmed up and the other would not mm -hmm. so it was like we had like 16 massive buckets in total just to be able to check you know to the control yeah. and higher temperature then control and then uh, higher light yeah. and um uh yeah so that was pretty much it yeah so the acidity the temperature and the light level so light level like we would just um the light level was to look at um the impact of sedimentation on growth mm -hmm. you know because when they do a lot of agricultural work or construction work which was the case in hawaii lots of the the this material that they would take out would go onto the reefs and so they would just cover up all the corals and mm -hmm. so to, to make that in the experiment we just put like um we covered half of the experiment with um um how do you call them like a sheet like a darkening yeah. sheet dark sheet uh to test uh, the effects of that yeah that's definitely one of the big issues that we're facing right now off the coast of australia you would have heard as well the massive amount of sedimentation coming off of the farms as well as nitrogen going into the coral reef catchment areas and of course some of the biggest like farm and industrial um like agriculture places are right next to the coast to the great Barrier Reef, which is why they're so fearful of the bleaching and everything that's happening in in terms of you putting the the coral under these stressors how long did you leave them in there before you could see them die off was it like a day a week um how long did it take to see a difference essentially no they lasted about two weeks two weeks with you know like really trying to struggling to survive and then yeah. they would just completely bleach out did you so. um did you have a look at like how quickly they would rejuvenate if you stopped you know if you would remove the sheet or put the temperature back down did you have a no we actually that? actually didn't because we wanted to look at you know the impact over a period of three mm -hmm. weeks yeah and so that was it like we looked at what happened in those three weeks or months you know like how however long it would take to die off and then just uh just leave it there because we will have to probably just add more fragments of the scrolls, but because they are endangered, we didn't want to, yeah. you know, cut off too many. Just killing all the coral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's kill all of them and then see what happens. Yeah. Oh, but that sounds really fascinating. So even just in a short area and like the two short time period, I mean, of two weeks, you could see that the coral was dying. This is, of course, what we're seeing out on the reef as well when there are big 
increases in temperature or the changing currents bringing different um, acidity, the, the corals are bleaching essentially after two weeks, which then potentially can lead them to die. If you guys are more interested about hearing stuff about coral reefs and regrowing coral reefs, you should check out the episode with Hannah Kish because we talk all about coral restoration and all of that. Um, so yeah. Anyway, sorry, Lucy. Back to back to back to that. I wanted to ask one more question about um, the acidity. I'm just not quite sure how does the increasing temperatures affect the acidity or how does climate change affect the acidity of the ocean? Yeah, so, so we, so the humans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we have lots of transportation, we use lots of fuel. Yes. And so one of the fuel is burnt, it uh, goes in the atmosphere and, and creates lots of, well, much higher amounts of carbon dioxide. So when the carbon dioxide enters the ocean, it combines with seawater and through like a chemical process, it produces carbonic acid, mm -hmm. which increases the acidity of the water. So lowering its pH. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then that has the impact on. On the. On <laughs> of course, this whole, this, the entire impact of this is not known, yeah. but it has been shown that it does impact the shell producing of calcifying organisms like oysters and clams. Mm -hmm. And it would also therefore impact coral reefs, right? Because they also grow yes, as, as well. Yes. Yes. All right. Very cool to know. So acidity does not only make shells thinner, but it can also potentially slow the growth of coral reefs, which are trying to recover. So <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> many problems. Many problems associated <laughs> with climate change. All right. Thank you for clearing that up. I feel a bit more knowledgeable about that. Um, and then I also didn't know about the, the effects of the ice caps melting because we've been hearing about this since I was in you know primary school about climate yeah. change and living more green and eco, otherwise the ice caps will melt. But so you're saying the fresh water kind of goes into the ocean at a higher rate than it did in the previous years and it doesn't have a chance to, to freeze, therefore, that's actually impacting the currents. So does it increase them or change their directions? Or what do we know about what's happening with the fresh water? Um, I know that in the Atlantic Ocean, mm -hmm. the amount of Arctic sea ice that's been melting into the water has changed the currents mm -hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean because fresh water, because it's different, let's say, weights Densities. compared yeah. Yeah, different densities of mm -hmm. uh, compared to seawater, then it just changes the whole dynamics because m m you, if you get much more fresh water than seawater, then the currents just this just com like a complete deviation of what is currently observed. And the more fresh water goes into the ocean, the more it will just disrupt the currents. Like globally, right? Right now, it's not like as big of an effect, but mm -hmm. there's still uh, lots of sea ice to be melted. Unfortunately, so that drives the currents to like completely change. And of course, people mostly talk about sea level rising because yeah. that does affect coastal communities. Yeah. But they don't really talk about currents because currents mostly impact marine species that rely on currents to, yeah. to navigate. And that we know very little about still relatively. <laughs> yes, as well. 
Wow, okay. Uh, now let's get to the second part of what you were telling us about, which was the overfishing. Um, yeah. What I found really interesting was kind of your, your description about uh, how if the sharks are killed, that means their prey, which is the sea lions in this case, um, there's yeah. no since they don't have any natural predators and therefore all of a sudden their large amount is causing a significant decrease of like the next step of the food chain, which is like smaller fish, I guess. But yeah. that also continues on further. And I read somewhere that once these smaller fish are missing, their prey has disappeared. I mean, their, their prey has multiplied. So whether it's the crustaceans or um, if they're herbivorous, then it's the algae and everything, which eventually can lead to changing even more composition of the ocean, the amount of oxygen in the ocean, everything like that. Um, yes, yeah. so that's yeah, really exactly. scary. Because we don't even know what we're doing just by removing one part of the food chain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, exactly. It's it's very scary, and then it just does a whole change. If you if you don't have fish on coral reefs, then it just becomes algae, and algae is not well. It's good to a certain extent to have, but mm -hmm. if you remove all the prey, and then it just becomes just all algae, then it's just also bad for the environment. It's just all about having this balance. But the more humans they are, like the increase in yeah. food, like food demand, the more, let's say, if, if, if the demand still is there, then we, well, we'll have to fish more and, unless there's, uh, until there is almost nothing. And the problem as well is they say that aquaculture could be a good solution, right? So, but you have, so, different types of aquaculture you have your on land aquaculture and you have marine aquaculture and um i was traveling around norway and i saw lots of these like salmon aquaculture um, devices which are placed directly in the ocean and they just kind of you know like netting around yeah. those uh, uh, yeah exactly and people say oh but it's perfect i can just eat like a fish from aquaculture but the problem is those fish are fed different types of food so they're like they own other species of fish there's also pork in the, the food they give them there's uh so corn things like um, elements that are just not a part of a fish's natural diet and corn. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, corn's like, what? I don't think you can find a corn on the water, but do let me know. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> um, yeah, and so if, so first the food is just very weird, like what they, what they provide them with. And then there's a lot of disease because there are so many in such a small spot and they can't really move around. Mm -hmm. that, that leads to many fish getting diseases. And this just goes straight into you know, the wider ocean because that's where they are already and that impacts other species with that which then become like sick and get these like diseases and also die off because of that. Yeah. So that's happening with the salmon apparently. So the the yes. the free what what are the terms? The wild caught salmon are now having the diseases which have kind of bred and multiplied in these sea pens. Um I was also I I cannot remember who I was speaking to, but they were telling me that because of the amount of fish in these sea pens and how close they are to each other, 
they don't have the opportunity to swim um, like they usually would in the wild, which means yeah. their muscles are underdeveloped and they're basically just like flesh which falls off of the bone in terms of if, like if they were to pick up the salmon, like they would kind of fall apart because they don't have that muscular um, strength. So they actually have to give additional hormones and um, chemicals to, to like toughen up the flesh before they actually catch them. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds, sounds really bad. And humans think that very few things have a, you know, feel pain or have a conscience or yeah. something. But I really do believe that every animal has some kind of consciousness or, mm -hmm. or feelings or what, I don't know how, how you would say, like emotions, maybe like raw emotions, maybe like, yeah. you know, pain and, and maybe a stress, like fish are, are prone to stress, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know, just also in the part of ethics revolving behind that is also very, I don't know, very sad, basically. It is. Um, but as you were saying, like, one of the biggest issues, of course, is the demand for, for the fish. And yeah. um, it, when, you, when you first emailed me, what I found really interesting is that you talked about how difficult it is to, to go out into the field and say, oh, fishing is bad or overfishing is bad and yeah. the thing is the people who get the most kind of um, negative blame for the fishing is of course the fishermen and the people out there but those are the people who depend on it for their life and for their family so could you tell us a little bit more about your experience of actually talking to the fishermen and like learning about the impacts of fishing in communities yeah sure so um i was so i was doing uh to give a bit of background i was yeah. doing my <laughs> master's uh in gym school so in marine biology and ecology and i i really my dream was to do my master's in cambridge right because mm -hmm. the, the level of research and and understanding you can get about your field of of interest is just huge and i got in contact with uh the conservation strategist of manta trust i don't know if you know it it's like an ngo working on manta ray research and conservation and i told her like look i i really want to work with manta rays because it's a species i don't really know about mm -hmm. and i've had this kind of mind bugging thought that why why do fishermen steal fish you know like why don't they understand that fish are really the oceans are it's such like so threatened right now like fish are disappearing are deplete are being depleted and they still fish them and not not even sustainably and why do they do that like why do they keep fishing if they know that if they don't if they don't fish sustainably they won't have anything within 10 20 years and so she said look like the perfect plan for you is to go to peru I was like, what are you, you know, like, it's go to Peru. Don't, don't be in the UK. Go to Peru. <laughs> um, and that's because, and it's actually like true because in Peru they have a, there's a mandatory population in the northern area of Peru, which is so very close to the equator and mm -hmm. Ecuador, <laughs> um, where there's high diversity. There's a lot of fish, a lot of species and manta rays are being caught there. And there's also a lot of overfishing. And in the last 10, 20, 30 years, there've been more and more small scale fishers uh, going for, well, for fish, of course, um, but really having a, a 
big impacts on the fish population there. And she was like, look, you could do interviews with them and ask them, like, why do they fish manta rays and why do they deplete their, you know, their, their ocean, basically? And the reason why um, uh, we wanted to ask why they keep still fish manta rays is because in 2015, there was a law that came out to ban manta ray fisheries, but they were still not complying to it. And in my head, I would just could not understand why they wouldn't comply because if, you know, if you put a law, it's, there's a reason behind it. You know, yeah. it's not just to annoy people or just because you can't do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went there. Uh, so I went to Peru in northern Peru um, for two months in April, at the beginning of April. So, of course, a few months before I had, you know, prepared the interviews, like talked to local scientists who got me a bit of a picture of what was happening in the area to be able to really tailor my questions um, in a way that was that they could understand, that was clear and that was really within the subject of overfishing and manta ray fisheries. And what I found out was, which is actually obvious when you think about it, is that fishermen are fishermen. So it's a job, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's what they do. They, they fish to get a living, to get money and to be able to, yeah, just to survive, basically to, to live. And most of the fishermen that I interviewed had to provide food, money, everything for about four or five members of their family, which weren't working. So this ha- they had this tremendous economic pressure to provide enough for their families. And so the monetary ban was very inconvenient in the sense that manta rays as i mentioned earlier like elasmobras like so sharks and others um and skates and rays don't can't see the nets and so when those fishermen put their nets so it's, pro- it's mostly gill nets that are set on the surface of the water and mm-hmm. can be hundreds of meters even like kilometers long they leave it overnight and of course manta rays don't see them and they get entangled mm-hmm. And the, but you know, like the fishery is most important. So they, it's not, it's not actually, most of it is actually not targeted as we yeah. thought it was, but it's accidental. Some, sometimes it is targeted because when fisheries are bad, they just go for it. You know, like whatever species just goes in their nest, they need to just take it, yeah. get money and, you know, like provide food for their families. And, it's just it's just such a switch of perspective and I was like oh well actually you're right like what do I say to that I can't say yeah oh so you can't fish like find another job you know yeah. because in the northern areas yes you have some agriculture but it's very desertic so most people do really rely on on fisheries and one of the problems as well is that they don't really get along with authorities because unfortunately, there's a big problem of corruption. So you have different types of small scales boats, right? You have like the four meters wooden boats and you have bigger like 12 meter uh, long boats, which go fishing. And if those big boats get a lot of fish in an illegal area, for example, the authorities will be like, hey, like I saw you going to the area where you, where you weren't supposed to. What are you going to do for me not to tell anything you know, and not mm-hmm. to find you? 
and so they give them money. Yeah, it's all like bribery, and so so the fishermen don't want to comply because they say, well, they look at the authorities how they're behaving. If they're asking me for anything, I'm not going to listen to them. I don't want to, you know, like I'm not going to listen to someone that is just bowed down to bribery, you know. Um, and so that was also like one of the biggest problems they faced and why they didn't want to comply. Um, and so that was really revealing because it means that the authorities, well, corruption is a big problem that has to be mostly solved at the national level. It's not really local, although I think there should be a more a dialogue between um, authorities and fishermen because fishermen are not really listened to, right? And that's like still the case in most of the world where the government just sets a law, there's the authorities and the authorities have to make the rules be complied to, but they don't really integrate the fishermen's perspective because in this case, the mandatory ban is not really what is needed, right? Mm -hmm. They thought it was targeted, but it's not. It's pure bycatch. So the solutions would be to work with the fishermen to know, for example, when to catch them. And that's one of the things we also looked at because the mandatory population hasn't really been, um, you know, monitored, let's say, or researched. We mm -hmm. don't know how many they are. We don't really know where they we know nothing. We just know there are manta rays in the area that comes from time to time. And from my research of interviewing the fishermen, I found out that manta rays mostly come in between the month of March and June, which is kind of the sum summer, between yeah. summer and winter there. And so that would be also like already an amazing initiative to probably have fishermen avoid areas in between those times and the rest of the time just fish you know let's say everywhere yeah um because of course for them like as a bycatch and it was also super interesting is when there's a ray that gets caught in the net more at night mm -hmm. the problem is like because it stresses the animal because the animal goes in panic because it's just like completely yeah. like in the net and gets completely entangled the fisherman has to jump in the water of course most of them don't know how to swim you know like swimming is pretty much a luxury it's really hard to to learn like these smaller uh, communities don't really know how to swim so the fisherman has to go into the water with a knife and try to unentangle a manta ray and the manta ray is about eight to nine meters wide like can reach like massive proportions and you have there this species that's just like moving all around this fisherman that doesn't know how to swim and has to cut the nets. And the nets are very, very expensive. They can be like a thousand two hundred like US dollars, which, you know, for them, they earn maybe three hundred, four hundred dollars per month. So having to cut their own net to get to get to take out a manta ray is very costly, very, very costly. And it's the the like the it's very different to fish a manta ray in South America and in Asia because you know in Asia they also have the the problems of fishing because of the gill plates of the manta rays mm -hmm. which are then really for maybe three hundred dollars each to like Chinese market for like traditional medicine but in South America there's no there's none of that like the manta rays are just you know they're just a fish they're not there's no yeah of the body that can be sold for like lots of money so in peru manta rays are very very cheap they're probably 
I don't know, you, you can buy maybe a full manta ray for like $3, you know, like the whole meat for oh. $3. Yeah, it has no economic value at all. Yeah. Like you have the different other species of rays that are, that have more, like higher value. So even for them, like catching a manta ray is only in extreme moments where like the catches are really bad and they just don't get anything. They will take a manta ray to still sell something, you know, and not just like come, come back empty handed. Yeah. And so the risk that the fisherman takes, the, the, the market cost of the manta ray, makes it very, you know, like a species, an unwanted species. Yeah. So what you need to do is, you know, like just by, by listening to them and understanding their mm -hmm. point of view, you can really see what could be done to really protect manta rays. And yeah. at the end, which could also protect fishermen, right? Because it would just make them take less risks. Yeah. from an entangling manta rays and so it's just super interesting how you just completely see it a different way and that's why i really want to enhance this communication you know these communication channels between authorities and fishermen and government and of course like because it was a research i had to do on a year time i couldn't interview i hadn't had time to interview authorities nor like government yeah. officials even scientists so you know NGOs like local NGOs because I'm sure everyone has like different perspectives which are all very important yeah but if you don't communicate between all of them you don't whatever solution you put up there will someone that will not be happy with it and then it just won't work so yeah I think yeah it was very very interesting to to see this dynamic and I think you know, whatever conservation that needs to be done, it's not only be, only to be done with local communities because mm -hmm. they live there, because, oh, like, we might leave because we're international people and we don't yeah. really, like, leave the zone, you know. It's also because, you know, it just enhances con conservation, like, solutions. Yeah, and they have a large amount of invaluable information because they know when they're catching the manta rays the most. The same thing when I was in Africa, in Moheri, you know, we didn't know anything about the ocean there. And they could tell us, yeah, we've seen manta rays in this bay during this time of the year. Yeah, we saw whale sharks swim over there. We've seen thresher sharks during this time. Sharks are pregnant during this time. This is when the humpbacks come. And it's these local communities really have a lot of information that us as, you know, conservationists don't. So I think you raise a very valuable point there where we do need to work together with the people because you know as as you were saying it's they're not out there to be the bad guys you know they're not out there like trying to kill the manta rays or destroy the oceans it's a lot to do with necessity and um as you were saying it's it's the poverty it's the corruption it's these massive humanitarian issues as well which are blocking um the ability for us to to make more progress in in ocean conservation so thank you so much for sharing that because i think a lot of people don't realize, and I, I think it's important for us to like remember, you know, that there's people out there who are just trying to live their life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also, it's it's very important to just start doing it right now, right? Because, yes. like in the case in Peru, like they really, the fishermen are really scared because there's really no fish. There are weeks yeah. where they have nothing. But the problem is like we like it really needs to be sustainable. I'm not saying it, there definitely needs to be a law and a fine, but 
really a way for fisheries to be less impacting on mm -hmm. the ocean because in Peru, for example, like within the first four or five miles of the ocean, you can't fish. Like you're not supposed to fish because that's where all the juvenile fish are located. Yeah. Because of this whole corruption thing, both still fish them. Mm -hmm. And they, okay, they still get their temporary money, but then there's nothing for no one for months. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just a, a very complex dynamic that has to be somehow like understood by all stakeholders and really put something in place to really maintain this um, this fishery sustainable. But then as I was mentioning, because there's like higher human population, there's higher mm -hmm. demand, like, ah! <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big problem, but thank, thank you so much for sharing that. And we're running out of time. So I'm okay. just gonna ask you, <laughs> no, no, no problem. I'm. I could talk for days about these topics and maybe we'll have to have you back in another time um, where you can tell us even more about your, your research and um, work. But I want to finish off the podcast by asking the question that I ask everyone, which is what would you recommend for the people, the ocean lovers, the ocean warriors out there who want to help, who want to make a positive impact? What is the one thing you would recommend for them to do um, to help protect our oceans? Yeah, um, for sure one of the things is that really we have to integrate, which is really hard because we're so many, we're like 7 billion yeah. humans. But it's true that whatever you do, like you, you, you impact something. So yeah. if you recycle, that's already, who knows, like plastic that doesn't go into the ocean. It's like less pollution, it's recycled. So you can like, it can be reused. Um, in terms of fish, I would say really, avoid as much as much as possible eating fish mm -hmm. like a good alternative is chicken for example of course there's a whole bunch of issues with that as well <laughs> but at least chicken you can't get bycatch you know you can't like accidentally like kill a bat when you want to <laughs> kill a chicken i guess um uh so that's one of my advices as well like try to minimize it at the maximum i know of course it's very hard you know like one to taste like tasty fish like to say no to it forever it's really hard <laughs> um try to avoid that at the maximum and yeah like if you know like join the protests like even climate change protests can be like pacific doesn't have to be violent of course yeah <laughs> and, yeah and just like whatever whatever action that you think that you want to do just do it honestly it has like a ripple effect so like it just impacts every everything around you so that would be my my advice well <laughs> just that was quick. like if you have any you know initiatives to to find to go to an ngo and like find out more about oceans like do it if you want to you know like if you have like an innovative way that we could do to like reduce the amount of fish being caught then like you know just Tell oh, us. Yeah. Send me an email. Oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com. Let me know. If you have ways to minimize yeah. the fishing, please, yeah, please. Sure. I want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, if you're like 10, 20, 80 years old, like I think anyone has like really the potential to find amazing solutions. That's that's very true and very inspirational. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Lucy. Um, I'm going to have all your you know, info out there for anyone who wants to get in touch with Lucy as well, ask her any questions. Um, you'll be able to check that out on my website, oceanpancake.com. But otherwise, 
Lucy, it was a pleasure to chat with you today, and I hope to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Once again, Lucy, thank you so much for joining me on the Ocean Pancake Podcast. It means the absolute world to me that you decided to come on board here and share some of your expert knowledge and advice. I learned so much, everything from overfishing and the effects of that on our oceans, as well as how important it is to consider the local communities and the impacts of what manta rays actually mean in Peru and how different it is from different places in the world. I don't know. It was just a fascinating episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you guys learned something and got inspired to get started at no matter what age and no matter what country you're in to come together and help the oceans. As always, you can help me continue to do the work I'm doing by becoming a Patreon. Um, you can check all that out on my Ocean Pancake uh, podcast website. So go over there. There's all the show notes as well. Um, and it would mean the world to me if you would join the ocean tribe and get yourself a plastic is the killer t-shirt so proceeds from that of course go to plastic cleanups as well as helping me continue to do the work i'm doing of sharing education and inspiration to make this world a cleaner greener more turquoise place in the world as always thank you so much to graham mose for the epic beats uh, which you hear in this episode and yeah if you guys have anyone you would like to hear from on this podcast let me know send me an email at oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com and i can't wait to hear from you guys i love doing this hope you've enjoyed this episode and i'll see you guys next week